Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 84. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we've seen with Charles that he hasn't seen. This week, we watched the 1996 movie Fargo. So Charles, tell us about it. A man pays off some criminals to fake kidnap his wife so that he can make some money off of her wealthy father. Everything goes wrong once this starts to happen. Uh, the criminals get pulled over by the police. They end up having to kill him to get away and kill two other people who witnessed the act. And this leads to the police investigating them. Pretty much everything fails and the police end up <laughs> figuring out what happened. Uh, so one of the criminals kills the other and the surviving criminal gets caught and the guy who hired them also gets caught in the end. Yep, that's <laughs> a comedy of errors in a yeah. lot of ways. Crossman, this was your selection this week. What, what brought you to Fargo? Yeah, this is like the OG Coen Brothers movie, or at least <laughs> the one that like put them on the map. Yes. Yeah. yeah where, where they started winning awards and shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is also where they like really started to figure out their style of like this sort of like dark comedy. Yeah. Um, well, and it, and they start making it a little bit more marketable, right? Because you look at something like Raising Arizona, which came before this, and that also had this dark comedy thing, but there was more absurdity to it. Is that the one with Nick Cage? Yes. Yeah. It's a great movie. Like if, I've heard of it. Yeah. Crazy <laughs> Arizona is a great movie. I didn't know that was Coen Brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely is. Because um, that's Francis McDermott as well. But I, that's like a tougher sell than this movie, where I think this one, it still very much feels like a Coen Brothers movie, but it's a little bit easier to pitch. Yeah. I think this one defines a lot of their forms, where it's like there's comedy to it, there's over-the-top violence, like very gory violence, very like chatty, like not a lot yep. of action yep. in this movie, um, but when there is action it's like Abrupt. surprising. Yeah. And, yeah. And they're, like a number of their later films follow this uh, format to varying yeah. degrees of success. Uh, yeah, and I think it, it defined what people think of when they think of Coen Brothers movies, right? They think of movies in yeah. this style. And they've done more than that. Like, we've seen No Country drastically different than this movie. Mm -hmm. um, like, th like Inside Lewin Davis, very different movie than this. But that's, like, later career stuff. Like, this is the, like, quintessential, I think, mm -hmm. Coen Brothers experience. <laughs> yeah, I think Burn After Reading is, like, just a different version of this film. And Hail Caesar draws a lot from this film too. Yeah, yeah. but like even yeah. those, I think, are getting a little bit more esoteric than this. Like Fargo's pretty grounded. Like this, this movie is like plays it pretty straight a mm -hmm. lot of the time. And those movies, I think, do that less. Especially Hail Caesar, I think, do that less. Hail Caesar is over the top for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, like even um, in Burn After Reading, like it's the same similar people. Similar characters. Same just, actors. Yeah, similar <laughs> actors. Just dumber, right? Like, yeah. they're just uh -huh. even stupider than they are here. Yeah. And this is a movie with a lot of very stupid people in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, again, is very typical of Coen Brothers, right? Like, they like centering the dummies, right? Like, there are so many idiots in their movies <laughs> over and over and over yeah. again. Um, what do you think of this one, Charles? Do you like it? Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Okay, good. Uh, I guess I really like the Coen Brothers' like dialogue style and the way they portray their characters. There's, cer there's a certain, like... Um, flair to their characters, I guess. They, they seem more strongly characterized than in many other directors' films, um, and I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, and I, I think a lot of that comes across in the writing. They work with pretty good actors. Yeah, that helps. Too. You gotta, yeah, you gotta <laughs> throw it to that. Like, <laughs> that does help. William H. Macy is a very good actor, as is Francis, Francis McDormand. Right, well, and there's a reason and that... Steve Buscemi. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a powered... Trio no in kidding. Like acting. Yeah, and, and so. John Carroll Lynch in like two or three scenes, right? Like that's still is that the, the husband. The husband. 
right? Like the guy, oh, right. he was in Zodiac, right? He was the guy yeah, that was probably yeah. the, the whole killer. Time, I was yeah, like, yeah. She's, she's got the Zodiac killer right, <laughs> right there. there. I couldn't help it, yeah. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, like there he is in like three or four scenes. Um, just one of the great character actors, period. And he's yeah. great. And you're right, I, I think there's a reason that we still associate this role for William H. Macy and McDermott most strongly with each of those actors, mm -hmm. right? Like, the, they've each stuck with them for decades after this movie came out. Yeah, and I, I think I just really like their style of dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting, it's very fun. Um, and in addition, this is also a Deacon's film, and it was beautiful. Yeah, especially like some of those early shots. Like, he has a lot of... Um, this is the art director. The, yeah, cinematography. Yeah, director of photography. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, I, I remember pretty clearly, like, that shot where it's just, like, a barely a strip of land on the bottom of the screen, and the rest of it is just, like, all, like, white-blue sky, and, like, yeah. that some shitty little car driving across the bottom of it. Yeah, well, like, the, the headlights show up in the distance, right? <laughs> this is the first shot, I think, right? The headlights show up there's in the distance. There's that shot, yes, but then there's another one, also early in the film later on, where it's just, like, a, like a side view of... Oh, that right. landscape. But yeah, that one you're talking about is great as well. Yeah, and then like it just kind of fades into view for a while and drives past. Right. Well, and that, the music that they have, like the opening of this film is so ominous, right? Like they have this car driving in the middle of a blizzard mm. that, you, that looks like a fucking ghost or something. Yeah. And like this really dramatic, heavy music played over it. And like for a movie that plays out like as a series of just really stupid choices after that, like it's this very serious beginning right after we get that intro where it says, this is a true story, names yeah. have been changed mm -hmm. to protect the innocent, everything else have been, has been kept the same to, uh, to respect the to dead. To respect the dead, that was yeah. it, yeah. Turns out not a true story. No, not at all, yeah. <laughs> totally made this up. Um, and then there's that great like ancillary story where the woman from Japan, I think, like traveled to Minneapolis to dig up the treasure that Steve Buscemi left on the side, of, like literally in real life. Oh, no. to, yes, to dig up that treasure on the side of the road. Lo and behold, it wasn't actually there. Oh, um, but yeah, someone actually did Surprising. that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, stunning development. Because um, she thought it was a true story. Well, Where while would we're you still even start. Oh, it's, well, Where would you even start? It's yeah, right, like it, a it, it's a stupid idea. Yes, yeah. it's a stupid idea. This is not someone who's well. <laughs> no, no, yeah. not at all. But someone did it. Uh, what were you saying? While we're still vaguely on the topic, I really like the shot uh, that was like looking down at the parking lot, and there were a few like yes. flower planters in like a grid. Yes, it's a gorgeous it. shot. I think that's right when he was about to scrape his window and like freak out. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that yeah. shot really stuck with me. It was amazing. Because he, yeah, he makes his, he's make, this is the William H. Macy's character. He's making his pitch to Mr. Gunderson, to his father-in-law. And they turn him down, essentially. And just like the thing that he was leaning on to get all this money isn't going to pan out. Um, and I remember reading an article about this pretty recently where they talked about the editing choices in that scene. Because it does have that really striking bird's eye shot. But then after that, you have him get into his car in the middle of winter in Minnesota. He sees that the windshield is iced over. He gets his scraper out and he starts scraping it off and then he flips out and he tosses the scraper away. And I think there's a lot of movies, or the, the point that this article draws, that there's a lot of movies that would cut there, right? Mm -hmm. That like, he freaks out, he throws it away, cut away to the next thing. The, the biggest action is over. But they don't, they stick with it. And so he has to like, get done freaking out, go over and get the scraper, come back to the car, start scraping it off again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, then it stops being just like, 
a freak out moment and becomes funny and become and, and like just like sticking with it makes it humorous and more yeah. pathetic. Yes, and like makes him just like this yeah this sniveling kind of impotent character. Um, I, I saw that same article because I was thinking about that point when I saw that scene. I think that was one of the few things I knew about this movie okay. going into it actually because yeah. because of, of that article or there was like a video about it or something. Like yeah, that. it might have been a video. You're right. Um, and it's true. It's absolutely true. Like you can you can watch the movie and look for the moment when you would cut if you weren't yeah. trying to do that with this character. I noticed there were a lot of scenes that seemed to go on longer than I would expect. One that really stood out to me was when um, Frances McDormand's character mm -hmm. um, eats breakfast and then like goes out to her car and the shot's still lingering yes. inside the house yeah. of her husband like eating her breakfast and then she like tries to start a car and comes back into the house. It's like car won't start. Because I was wondering why, why are we still the here? scene was still going on, and then she gets out of her car and comes back into the house. It needs a jump. So it probably needs a jump. That was it. Well, and that that is framed so well too, because you have like this divider in the house, like right in the middle of the screen, and you have John Carroll Lynch on uh, sitting at the dinner at the breakfast table on the left hand side, and you have the door outside to the left hand on the right hand side, and it's like yeah. this dual story kind of setup to make like what's really a pretty boring scene, she eats breakfast, goes outside, carbo and start, comes back inside, into like something that's visually dynamic and like visually yeah. interesting. Although I'm still not entirely sure why that scene was done that way. I think a lot of what, well I, I think it speaks to a, a lot of what they're trying to say with this Francis, the Francis McDormand character, because like the, the first thing we learn about her, like you see her waking up in the middle of the night in her nice, you know, domestic little home with her husband who's happy to get up at the crack of dawn to make eggs for her. You see that she's pregnant, right? You see that, so you know right away she's not going to ever be an action star, right? Yeah. Like she, there's no point where she's going to be involved in a shootout or she's going to go chasing after somebody. You see her then have this wholesome, nice little chat with her husband. You have her be very good at her job. Like she figures out immediately what's going on at the, she's like the only smart person in the movie immediately figures out what's going on at this, you know, the crime. So I think like all of that whole opening sequence with her, because she doesn't get introduced until like the beginning of Act Two, mm -hmm. like really compactly characterizes her as somebody who is wholesome, competent, and very satisfied with where she is. Mm -hmm. And I think that stands in contrast to basically everybody else in the movie. Because like mm -hmm. you compare it specifically to the William H. Macy's character who is incompetent, unsatisfied with where he is, Right, like, and very desperate to, to fix that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of desperateness that is ultimately his downfall. It's probably obvious to say this, but the, the movie is very bleak. Yes, it um, is. But I think that plays even into the editing, where like, there's a there's so much non-action in this movie. There's mm -hmm. like an emptiness to the scenes, and like yeah. letting the camera roll. A lot longer than normal, like mm -hmm. I think adds adds to that feeling of bleakness. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, going back to when C. Buscemi's like burying the uh, all the money, you like you see him. He looks down the barbed <laughs> wire, and there's nothing, and then he, he looks, looks the other, the other way, direction. It's the also same thing, nothing. And nothing, and it's like long pauses, like on. Right. The nothingness of, of Minnesota. Right. Well, and he, I love that he digs that hole and like just buries it in the snow. 
right? <laughs> like, snow melts. Yeah. <laughs> like, he would have to go back pretty quick to get that. Puts the, well, it's Minnesota in winter. Scraper. He's got a few months, right? Yeah. He puts I mean, the scraper. Right, as a signal. Never find. <laughs> right, exactly. Never. It's going to blow away immediately. Uh, utter nonsense. Because yeah. he's a moron, right? Like, everyone yeah. except Francis McDermott is a moron in this movie. Um, I don't know if either of you have ever driven in the Midwest in the wintertime. This Not is, in the winter. This is a very accurate depiction of that experience. <laughs> like, it is it, exactly as desolate as it looks, exactly as flat as it looks, just white snow everywhere, occasional trees also covered in snow. And, and you run the risk of randomly flipping your car at you, night? You, yes, absolutely you do. Well, th those guys flip their car because they were driving too fast. But also, like, yeah, you just hit a patch of ice and it happens. Like, it, it's a very regular occurrence to be driving along and you just see a car in a ditch. I've, I've yeah. driven through western Texas, which was, like, driving on the moon, essentially. <laughs> right. And then yeah. I've also driven through Kansas and neighboring states, and that was brutal. Yeah, the worst I've ever... It was not in the winter, but yeah. during the summer. And yeah. It was still just like... Nothing. It's just nothing, right? Infinite nothingness. The, the, yeah. the worst I've ever done is driving through Nebraska. Yeah. That was... I'm sure it's similar. It's, I'm glad it, I haven't had to do any of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not a pleasant... It would probably kill any love I have of driving. Yeah, I hate driving. It's Yeah, it's a downer. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not fun. If I were to drive across the country again, I'd definitely go like go south and like drive across the south. It's gotta be better, yeah. right? Yeah. It's gotta be something else. Yeah. Um, so point is that, like the, in, in terms of this mo movie's depiction of the Minnesota landscape, like, yeah, pretty yeah. <laughs> pretty accurate. I, I definitely felt a certain like Cohen disdain for the characters and for Minnesota and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. they have a complex relationship with their characters basically all in all their movies. Yeah. Do people yeah. actually talk like that? Yeah, uh, so that's a commonly raised question. Um, if the question is are there any people at all in Minnesota and Wisconsin and and North Dakota or whatever that talk like that, the answer is definitely yes. yes. Okay. I wasn't sure if they were hamming up the accent. There are, there are people that do. It is not true that literally every single person does, like, okay. like in this movie. Because I got the impression they were hamming it up so much that it felt like they were making fun of the people there. And yeah. I think that, like, just the ubiquity of the accents in this movie, I think that they kind of are. Um, but they, that accent exists. Like, that's, that's a real thing that and some people talk like that. It's yeah. probably akin to, like, yeah. main people in Stephen King sure. content. Because um, they're always like hammed up, mm -hmm. and then you go to Maine and like nobody's sick. They're just like old people. There's like a, <laughs> and those people like had to have like grown up in Maine forever. Yeah, yeah. and that that's similar to I mean because I'm from the Midwest and like when I go back home now I hear that accent much more clearly than I did as a child growing up mm -hmm. there, um, and much more not just clearly in certain people but more frequently just in more people. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a real thing, and I, I I wonder if that's like I don't know where the cones are from, I forget, but I wonder if that's what they hear when they go back there. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably from Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's it. Okay. Yes, <laughs> we can figure this out pretty easily. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's it. There are people I think that exaggerate it, but but I think not it's not just a disdain for the characters. It's like Minnesota itself, because it's like. There's nothing going on here. This is pretty bleak. It sucks during the winter. Right, and yeah, and, and I, well, you, yeah. I think you get that with most of their movies, though, right? Like they're characterized as directors that do hold their character, their characters in disregard, and intentionally create people that are kind of loathsome and pitiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 
like I think that to a certain point speaks to their view of humanity, <laughs> which is <laughs> also bleak. Um, but it's it's present here as well. Um, there's not a lot of silver lining in this space. So Joel Cohen was born in Minnesota. He's married to Francis McDormand. I knew that that they were married. Um, and Ethan was also born in Minnesota. Okay. Well, so. of course they're brothers. Um, so <laughs> well, I mean, you can move. Yeah, I guess. Okay. So I feel like I should have known that. Or that I knew that at Did some they point. get married after Fargo? Uh, they were married in 1984. So, so yes. Before. So they got married like right when Blood Simple was coming out, which was everybody's first movie <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, which is, have you seen Blood Simple? Uh, I have not. Legitimately scary. Like you don't <laughs> expect, like, that's what I remember of it. Like it's this kind of <laughs> murder thriller kind of movie that takes place in the South, I think. And Francis McDermott is the star. And I don't like I can't think of any other Coen Brothers movies I've seen that scared me, but there are like actual scary moments in that movie. It's really good. Lynn Sibyl holds up. Um, it's it's no Country has some like scary moments. Yeah, I was just right, to say. right, and it's similar Intense. to that. Like at the, I think No Country is most has most akin with uh, with Blood Simple, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's in that same vein. Um, and they they had that like right, that was their first movie. They had that right away. Um, I found the the plan. I think I think this is on purpose. Um, that William stupid. H Macy had well, stupid, but also kind of confusing. <laughs> yes. I wanted to walk, yeah. like verify. Well, what it. I was confused by <laughs> was what Other the people. parking lot plan had to do with it, or if they were just completely separate plans for him to get money. No. Yes, I think they were distinct from each other, and this like the kidnapping plan was a backup plan in case this because he didn't really think that his dad, his father-in-law, was going to invest in this parking lot, and that's why he yeah. was trying to get in touch with the Steve Buscemi character when he finds out that he, he probably is going to invest. And then he can't because, like, you know, the, the, they've crossed the Rubicon. But he's also stealing money from the GM car financing. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that Badly. I was confused by okay. what the car registration thing was. Yeah, because part of the payoff to Buscemi and other guy was a car. Like, they were going to get X dollars plus a car up front. Yeah. And that's that. No, but there were other cars missing. Because they, they said later that they're missing, like, $360,000 and, like financing money. I thought that they said there was a loan or something and they oh, needed okay. 10 registration numbers. I was really confused by what that was. I wondered, I thought it was maybe related to the parking lot plan. They needed a loan to like fund that or I don't know. Yeah, so I think, and maybe follow this through line with me. Okay. He stole the money for the parking lot finance, or for from the GM, GMAC, which is like GM's like right. accounting firm yeah. that's available to, if you're going to get like a car loan, that's where you get it from. Okay, so he steals like $360,000 from that. He's looking to um, get money to cover that amount, so he hatches this plan to right. get the financing for the parking lot, either from his father-in-law or from the kidnapping money, like ransom money. Or both. Or both. <laughs> yeah. Um, cover the amount that he stole from GM financing and the money for his would-be kidnappers and then have money left over for himself. Right. I think Uh, you're correct. Okay. Jeez. Yeah, that's that sounds right to me. It's a stupid plan, right? Because even if he even if that goes right and he he can't just like show up to GM and say, Oh, I stole a bunch of money, but here it is. Right? Like he would have to find some way to like launder that money back into the GM GMAC and like I don't know how the hell he'd pull that off. 
Yeah. Because this guy, yeah. He's not going to get real registration numbers for cars. Right, right. Well, I guess he could buy 10 cars. I guess. <laughs> but then it's still like 10 cars. Why, why did he buy 10 cars, <laughs> you know, uh, one yeah. day? So none of, none of it really makes a lot of sense. I like also that his plan is to, you know, fake kidnap his wife. But that involves really kidnapping his wife. <laughs> right. So it's yeah. not really fake at all. Yeah. Like, it's just, <laughs> well, it's, it's fake a real... if there's no real danger. Right. Only there. Theoretically. Of course there is, right? Because he yeah. hires these lunatics. And I, I love that, like, he has the meeting with Stan Grossman and the father-in-law. And the Grossman character asks him, like, what he's going to, what he's told his son. And he, like, it, like, dawns on him at that moment that his you know, manufactured kidnapping of the kid's mother may have some impact on his son. Yeah. Like he hadn't yeah. put nice that son. together until that moment. Like, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, gee whiz. Right. He says, oh, jeez, a lot. Oh, geez. He, he seemed like a Ned Flanders kind of dude. Well, people in the Midwest say, oh, jeez, a lot. So that, that part is also pretty accurate. The Ned yeah. Flanders comparison's apt, though. Yes, Like, it is Ned like Flanders, like... If he were an evil moron. Yeah. 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 That, that, I mean, really, he's a... I think that is the other... Like the other trope that the cones are obsessed with is really good old fashioned good and evil, right? Mm -hmm. Like they that comes up in their movies over and over and over again, and I think what they're doing here is they're making a few points. A evil can look like the William H Macy character, right? And also, evil and stupidity aren't that different, <laughs> right? Like the effects of being very dumb and inept aren't that different than the effects of being malicious. Because you look at the like the people that are competent and evil in this movie are the other not the, the non Steve Buscemi kidnapper who Peter Carl Schumer? yes is his name it looks like Grunz Grulgen yeah something. yeah exactly yeah. that guy Hans. he's like actually yeah. evil and like capable of executing evil in a in a competent way and potentially the father in law like he's a pretty selfish guy too and like clearly has been rewarded for that selfishness um, and. Like the dam the destruction that those guys do is co at least comparable to the destruction of the Steve Buscemi character and the William H Macy character, who are selfish and evil and also inept and stupid. <laughs> and so I think that that's important, right? That just being a good person isn't enough if you're also an incompetent person. <laughs> Right, like you gotta be Francis McDermott. You have to be both a decent person and capable. And that is also kind of a grim message, right? Because there's a lot of people that aren't capable, right? And there's a lot of people that are very stupid. Yeah, yeah I think that's the dourness of the Cohen films. Yes. Because I think uh, that's just like an assumption that they make in their. Right, I'm not saying their, they're right. In their worldview. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're It's definitely a part of their worldview. Yes, it like, absolutely is. Because it, it's a through line in so many films, in Burn After Reading in particular. It, yeah, especially like, in that one. Yeah. I mean, I think you can see it in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as well, um, where the, like they're not necessarily that bad of guys, but they keep doing dumb shit and yes. destruction follows in their wake. <laughs> it's been a minute since I've seen that film. It's good. But yeah. I remember not loving it. Oh, really? Yeah, when I saw Why? it. Why? It's it's uh, delightful. Yeah, I think it, I think I just found it like too like twee. I guess like it, it, it does have some of that, and, and I think that like funny Clooney draws that out sometimes. Yeah, uh, but I like funny Clooney a lot. It's the best Clooney. Burn after reading, I love. Though. I think it's, that's also some good funny I Clooney. I think it's my favorite Coen Brothers song. Really? Actually. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, actually, speaking of which, Charles, you've seen a few of them now. So you've yeah. seen uh, Big Lebowski, Fargo, No Country, Hail Caesar, 
Do you have a favorite? Like that's a pretty good category. Mm, that's a good like, good good library and a good like a range cross section. Yeah, like that's a lot. That is a good sampling of what they do. It might. It might be the Big Lebowski. I think that's okay. That's certainly the funniest of those four. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I gotta say toward like the memorable dialogue and how hilarious it was. Yeah, kind of stuff. That is that is a very funny movie and and probably their most watchable movie. Yeah, like it's very easy to go back to Big Lebowski over and over again, which is why there's like, you know, festivals about that movie. Yeah, yeah. So okay, okay, that's a pretty good pick. I think it's the most widely beloved of their films. Yeah, the most popular. Yeah, oh, not the most popular. Um, what do we think? We, we've mentioned him a couple times. But what do we think about Steve Buscemi here? He's the other like really big name, um, probably the biggest name in this movie. I thought it was funny that throughout the movie it was a running joke how weird his face looks, <laughs> and nobody can describe how it's just yeah. like he's funny looking. <laughs> yeah, I love that. He's just weird looking. He's just weird looking, yeah. which is like so accurate about Steve <laughs> yes, Buscemi. Right? He is. <laughs> he is indeed. Something about him. He is indeed weird looking. Well, I mean, it's his he, his features that are much larger than the rest of his face. <laughs> I think yeah. that that is a, a part of it. Um, he, he hires a lot of prostitutes <laughs> in this movie, yeah. and uh, he's got a hobby, I guess. I guess, like I wouldn't. Like, Minnesota prostitute doesn't strike me as that, especially small town Minnesota <laughs> prostitute doesn't strike me as a very appealing proposition. But he seems really into it. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's well liked throughout the industry. Oh, yeah, he's a favorite of Tarantino, mm -hmm. Adam Sandler. Yeah, and the Coens. Yeah, well, and he's worked with uh, Scorsese on Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, um, uh, and he was great in that. He's a really talented actor. Like he's that's great. <laughs> that's kind of why he's probably also a good guy. Like you don't get that much work if you're a yeah. pain in the ass. But Boardwalk is awesome. Boardwalk is he awesome. He was really good in it, and that's like a serious Buscemi. Mm -hmm. Usually he's like kind of a comedic character. Right, but not there. And not like there. it was, he was serious, but he was also menacing. Like that he was managed to capture like some legitimate threat. In yeah, that I don't character. know if I've ever seen menacing Steve Buscemi. Was I, was he in Reservoir Dogs? Yes, or he was. Was he menacing in Red, Reservoir no, Dogs? No, he's still like a comedic character in Reservoir Dogs, and like yeah. kind of a funny victim of much more menacing other characters. Well, he was yeah. supposed to be like the the Cassandra character, right? Like the one that like predicts what's going on and nobody listens to them and okay. is punished for it um, at the end. He's also shown to be a jerk at the beginning of the film. Yes, and yeah, and like, throughout the film, Hensworth. <laughs> Punished for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is he the one who says he doesn't tip? I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's, he how we, that's how he opens. That's how he opens. Not tipping. Yeah. 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 Um, and then he ends up tipping anyway, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is pretty good. Um, so yeah, he is really good here. Uh, this is next to Reservoir Dogs, probably his most famous role, um, or at least alongside Reservoir Dogs, is the one I associate him with most strongly. Mm -hmm. uh, he does this. Uh, like he, he's a guy that wants, he's a character that I feel like wants to take action a lot of times, but doesn't at all think about what the next step after that action is, right? He's, it, it's a very much like an immediate reaction to the immediate stimuli and like that's it mm -hmm. for this guy. And once again, I'm punished for that, causes destruction for that. Yeah, but and he's also like very hot headed, which gets yeah. him into trouble in addition. Yes. He's, he's good at being like a whiny, Character that like just suddenly starts yelling about things, right? Like a whiny, but like an angry whiny, right? Yeah. Like it's not like he's it's not a sniveling whiny necessarily, yeah. but it's yeah, like, like yeah, kind of Joe Pesci. No, it's feeling. like a speak yeah. to your manager kind of whiny. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like I, d I deserve special treatment. I deserve X Y Z, and you're not giving me the thing that I deserve. So I'm gonna yeah, you know, do something stupid about it. Yeah, he's really good at that. 
Yeah. His, his feeble attempt at bribing the police officer was really funny. Yes. That cracked me up. With the 50 signal. Yeah. So I could take care of it here in Brainerd. <laughs> a real town, by the way, that actually does have a Paul Bunyan statue. Is is that the statue that I, they I, filmed? Probably. It's got to be. probably wouldn't make a giant Paul Bunyan statue Right, and movie. it's not that hard to get filming rights in the middle of Minnesota, yeah. I'm sure. I, I love that they had like the shot of it at the beginning um, where you see it in the daytime and it seems like kind of you know, quirky. Yeah. Um, and then you have a shot of it later at night lit from below and it looks <laughs> horrifying. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, it looks terrifying. Yeah, it's such good, that, I mean, that's good work from Deacons. But again, it, it's so, it's meaningful as well, right? Because that's exactly what Minnesota nice looks like, right? Like you see it during the day and it looks like sincere and inviting and warm. And, but really, it's mostly bullshit. And like in this movie that it's concealing a bunch of, you know, murders and kidnappings and stuff. But like in the world, Minnesota Nice is also like a way to not ever, to like, it's, it's a way to like conceal any kind of sincere emotion, right? It's mm -hmm. like that's where we get Midwest stoicism and Midwest toxic masculinity that causes so much destruction and, and makes life worse for people all over there. And so you, you contrast like Paul Bunyan in the daytime versus Paul Bunyan in the evening. And I think you see some pretty clear... Mm -hmm parallels between the events in the film but also like the larger midwestern psyche mm -hmm. that is at play in this movie and i'm sure that the cones were very familiar with if they were born and raised in minnesota um, i think it was also timed with when the movie started getting more violent yeah it was because it was probably like right before they actually first killed people right because right, they killed the, the first kills happen at night right yeah. like they pulled over at night because they didn't have tags Right? Like yeah, the, I know, right? The dumbest fucking thing. On the new car that they demanded. Right, exactly. Just like the dumbest. And he just forgot to put them on, right? Right, and then he yeah. had them, right? It was, he just, <laughs> he was oh, too yeah. lazy. And like he couldn't just, like there are so many steps along the way there. You have to imagine what would have happened if he had just put these stupid stickers on his license plate, right? Totally I mean, different they, movie. they probably yeah. like get to the end and... Or get to the shack without any murders, and I don't know. Right. Like he's I guess the father would still demand to give the money himself. Probably. Right. That's that's common in a Coen Brothers story where something dumb is like the, the trigger for yeah. a lot of things. The, the rest of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or like or something incidental, right? Where it's just some. Yeah, yeah. It's like an accident. Um, we saw that in Brazil as, t as well, right? Where like the mm -hmm. bug falls into the typewriter, and that makes the whole movie happen. Yeah, the Coen Brothers use that trope a lot. Yeah. And burn after reading, I forget what it is, but there's something like really dumb that happens. That yeah, like they just like yeah. find a CD that incidentally yeah. fell out that is actually nothing. And that's and like was, the trigger for. It was story. never anything yeah. at any point, <laughs> right? Um, same kind of th same kind of thing here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that they're. Because the other thing that, in addition to the battle of good and evil and stupidity and not stupidity, like they're also concerned with fate, right? And you see that in No Country, where you have mm -hmm. the Sugar character who is like fate personified, right? Like taking one step after another. Um, but here as well, right? Like it's this dumb incidental thing. He happened to forget to put the the, the tags on the the license plate, right? He happened to drop the CD and burn after reading. And because of that, three people are dead, mm -hmm. right? Because of that, this woman gets kidnapped. Yeah. <laughs> right? The, and that's stupid. <laughs> the the other assassin definitely reminded me a lot of Sugar. Sure. Um, so the character's name is Ger Grimser. <laughs> of course it is. They definitely never actually it's, say his name in the movie. Okay, the yeah. actor's name is Peter Stormare. Yeah. Yeah. I have a hard time taking him seriously because I've seen him in those Volkswagen commercials. 
And he what? usually, he was in some Volkswagen commercials. <laughs> okay. And he, he says some really funny stuff in them, and he plays a lot of ridiculous characters, because well, that's kind of what he does. He's kind of a goofy looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, not in like such an overt way as, as, as uh, Steve He does get like the one like good comedic moment towards the end of the movie, where he's watching like some random soap opera and eating his TV dinner, and like you can see him like actually getting into it. Yeah. <laughs> like just like <laughs> half the screen is static, and he's like absorbed in this dumb soap opera. <laughs> like like she, she says that she's pregnant, and he's like genuinely shocked. Like, Whoa! It's, holy shit! <laughs> she's pregnant. Oh, no. <laughs> and like those little character moments, uh, the cones do they do that so well. Yeah. Um, sure. And so I liked it here also. Yeah, he's he's good. He's also quite the worker. He's in a, a lot of stuff. Looking at his IMDb, yeah, he well, he's a lot of like bit parts. He was a goofy Russian dude in Armageddon. He's usually a Russian okay. character. Yeah. Well, he, yeah he, he was at like the satellite or the space station when they had to refuel. You have a much better memory and of Armageddon than I do. Blown up. <laughs> okay. I've seen it a lot. It's on TV a lot. Okay. He was also in the Elder Scrolls Online. <laughs> okay. He was Joran the Scald King. Nice. <laughs> sure. No, he's in a ton of stuff. He does a lot of voice acting and um, and acting, acting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he has. He barely has any lines in this movie. He like he, tells. Well, that's the point, right? That right. He doesn't talk very much. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what makes him like Sugar, right? Where he's yes. like this, like kind of silent like force. He's quiet, death. but it's unpredictable, and then you see immediately how violent he's willing to go, so it's scary how un unpredictable he is. Literally an axe murderer. He, he axes uh, Steve Buscemi at the end. Oh, I thought it was a shovel. Was it a shovel? I thought it was an axe. No, it was an axe. Okay. okay. Yeah, over yeah. the cost of a car. Right, half, no, half of a car. <laughs> yeah. Half of a car, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he was the ultimate... Dumb act on the part of Buscemi. How much is shitty yes. 90s Oldsmobile worth anyway? Like 10 grand. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, at the time, it was basically a new car at the time, so it's yeah. something. Yeah, um, all the cars in this are so ugly. But it would have <laughs> only cost Buscemi like 10 grand to not get axed. To not get axed. Right? Yeah, and fed into a wood chipper. Yeah, yeah that's oh the most, God. I think that's what people associate with this movie with most is that fucking wood chipper yeah. at the end. Like, I did not expect that. I, I didn't really? hear about that. Well, I might have heard about it and like forgot that it was this movie or something like that. Oh, damn. I remember when I first watched this movie, I knew that that's, that was the ultimate fate for, <laughs> for Steve I, Buscemi. I, I like that in two Coen Brothers movies, Steve Buscemi ends up uh, in particulate form. <laughs> Wait, what's the other one? Big Lebowski. He gets uh, cremated. Oh, right. Okay, he gets burned. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's not how he dies. That's how he ends up. He gets cremated, yeah. <laughs> they just keep killing him. Yeah. Uh, you're right. And, and in dumb ways, right? Like in yeah. incidental ways. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... What most people remember about this movie is that Steve Buscemi in a wood chipper is, is how it ends. Just a red mist everywhere. How is he going to deal with that after? Right. Like shovel up the snow and throw yeah, it away, I guess. It under the snow. I don't know what the plan is, but yeah, like the big pile of just that bloody snow pile right in front of the thing is just, that is grisly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, what's his, I forget his name already, but our, the Beer. other. Sure, <laughs> that guy. He is also the audience for the most clear, like, s moral statement that this movie has, and really that the cones have in general. I think. And it's Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand is saying like, "You guys are really selfish, and this all happened because you're selfish, and we could have <laughs> prevented all this, and like, it was all for nothing, right?" And all this over a little bit of money. All this over a little bit of money. There seems to be more to it, though, for this character. Yes. We're there's like a psychopathy to this character that it, it didn't. You know, it's the money. 
yeah, like he the money was part of it for sure, but he, he liked killing. Yeah, you get you get that sense. Like you don't yeah. feed someone into a wood chipper. Well, here if you I just, go killing again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you're not. You don't get to that point. You're not axing someone in the face over five thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. If you don't like, kind of get off on on killing people. Yeah, um, I mean, he killed the wife too, which I felt super bad about. Yeah, she did end like, up dead. It wasn't pretty clear, but she's probably dead. Um, and apparently because she was too noisy. Right, which is again just a, a psychopathic act. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, I think they do a good job of like letting that happen off screen, because I think it would have been gratuitous to like kill the wife on screen. It's yeah. actually fine. Like it's not necessary to the plot, but still like adds to. Right, it supports their thesis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and they, so I they, think that they was handled well. Yeah, and that character had already had a rough enough time. Like, yeah. not only has she obviously been kidnapped, but like they they make her kidnapping like silly, right? Like that she bursts out of the bathtub covered with in the shower curtain and can't see what she's doing and flops around on the ground for a while, and then they just like walk over and pick her up and like that's it. Um, so and then she falls down the stairs. Right. Yeah, that's true. Knocks just, herself out. Exactly. And then it's just she yep, had a clever attempt at getting out though. I didn't expect that. Right, she just needed to keep her cool a little bit. She might have got away with it. Yeah, well, it seemed like the Stormare character had uh, realized something right. before she freaked out. Yeah, let's just say, like, he's, he needs to find something to treat his wound before he can, like, go and grab this woman. <laughs> like, that's where his priorities line up. Um, again, absurdity, right, for, for the cones. Yeah, the way that that whole scene starts is, is funny, too, because she's just, like, Watching oh. like a daytime cooking show, show or something, yeah, yeah, like a sort of this more this America or this Good Morning America, good morning, America. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, Good this Morning American Life, yeah, Good Morning Minnesota, I guess, yeah, yeah. Um, and then she just sees this Steve Buscemi character walk up to the class, <laughs> and she's just kind of <laughs> curious about it. She like yeah. doesn't really react yeah. with anything <laughs> other than like I wonder who this guy is, yeah, and with a ski mask on. You right. see him look in, not see her, and then like. Right, and then he like cracked the, yeah, the door, and, and like with no subtlety at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, and that's just it. Like she is, she is played for laughs, right? And I feel like her plight is kind of played. Yeah. For laughs, so to like kill her on screen for something stupid would, I agree, feel gratuitous. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I do want to. We didn't add anything to the movie. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. We know she's dead. Yeah. Um, but like, I think that. It's important that they gave Francis McDermott that little speech at the end, right? And I think that that like very simplistic, pure statement of some obvious moral truth is important to this film. Yeah, I think. Yeah, they do that in a lot of their films, where they're like, "This is the." the they the, do it in some of their films. They do it in Burn After Reading. No, what they do in Burn, they do the opposite in Burn After Reading. What they do in Burn After well, Reading. Well, they point to like, this is what it's about. Right, yeah. but what they what it's about in Burn After Reading is that this is all stupid and none of it mattered and it could have been prevented and like there's no good here. Yeah, and this one I think is more specifically about the evil here is greed, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, like McDermott is really calling out the 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 evil of want, and that's absent in Burn After Reading. It was just like the evil that arises from being dumb, and that's I think no, a different more message, the, like, or like the, the, the like pointlessness of like bureaucracy and well the, yeah, yeah there's that as well and I guess in Burn After Reading there's a message about like obsession with the self 
right? Because you have the Francis McDermott character that like wants to buy all this plastic surgery. <laughs> like that's why she's after the money. And in this movie, I think it's very clearly stating like greed is the evil here. This is why you're doing yeah. it, which is like kindergarten level morality, but still very true and like something that people. No country haven't. has like a similar moral statement. Right, where so. uh, the wife is just saying, like, you don't have to do this. Right. And like that is what the movie's about. Like the choices that we make are what is real, not the yeah. fate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. Maybe it, ha maybe it turns up more often than I recall. Yeah, I think it's like they do a good job of like summarizing their movies and say, like, this is the point. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> nice little uh, thesis sentence at the end. Yeah, and, and, and that is nice. Like, I think that it does contextualize things in a useful way. And I think it speaks to some of the complexity of what they're doing, right? Because they, they arrive at these like, moral truths in ways that are unconventional and compelling and like, make you think about how true they actually are, right? That if you, if you were to write down on a piece of paper, Right, the Francis McDermott speech and just about how like being greedy is bad and causes destruction. Like, yeah, okay, but when you see the actual effects of it and then see that statement, it obviously comes across as much more profound and true, even if it's still just the same message. Yeah, I think it it does a good job of like grounding the movie. Right? Yeah. It's like because there are a lot of movies where you get out and you're like, oh, I'm not really sure what that movie is trying to say. Yeah. And yeah. the Coens like don't hide that. They just say like, this is what we're trying to say. Right. And they yeah. say it. Like they actually do say it. It's not yeah. just they're not quiet about it. They're not. Just make sure you get it. it. I guess. Yeah, which yeah. I think is good. And like uh, having movies with purpose is is good. Like something we should be encouraging. Yeah, I think a lot of movies would be hard pressed to like have a statement like that. Yeah. Like to have a coherent, like thematic like, thread thematic thread and to be able to summarize it at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. In I a character's voice. a lot voice. of movies would be actually challenged to do that. Right. Well, right. Or if they did, they would end up saying something terrible. Right. Because, <laughs> right. Like, I think yeah. that would happen a lot, too. Yeah. That if you were to sit, have a character sit down and say, this is what we learned from this movie, you would end up saying something like, being more powerful than your enemies is the best thing. <laughs> right. Like that. <laughs> yeah. You would end up with that message very frequently. <laughs> and that's horrifying, right? Um, so like the, often the thing that speaks truest to our beliefs are the things we say accidentally. And like there are a lot of movies right now that say a lot of horrible things accidentally. And yeah. that is often the message, right? It's like being the most powerful is accidentally, if it's accidentally. The, because they're not forced to like show their hand as to like what they want or saying. No, the, I mean, the message, like, sure, like sometimes the, the bad message is intentional, but I think yeah. a lot of times people, screenwriters, studio execs, or even directors, are not, literally not thinking about what the messaging of their film is. Well, yeah, but like, yeah. films have like 30 writers now, too. So, right, yeah. again, another reason. Like, how could you ever have a coherent yeah. message? Unless you right. like set out with that in mind. <clears throat> which is, why, goal, which is exactly right? what you should be doing. Do. That's exactly what you should, that's how you should be writing. You should be thinking of what is your idea. Right, like yeah. what is holding this together, and like calling back to that throughout your story, and that's what the Coen Brothers do so well. They have an idea, and they make sure that everything that happens in the movie is going back to that that core premise, even if the core premise is something as straightforward as greed is bad. Yeah, yeah. versus like a, I mean, this is like an easy punching bag, but like Transformers, sure, which many of these actors. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I mean, or if we don't want to be that safe, the Marvel movies. I think the Marvel movies have this problem all the time. Yeah, yeah, they really they do. They seem to try yeah, at least a little harder because they, most of the movies have some sort, some sort of central character development they're trying to convey, which they make motions at it, but they, they rarely message. actually they rarely actually do it. Right? They just like make a move towards it, but the character development is often 
he tries harder and hits the guy better this time. Yeah, yeah that's right. why I think why <laughs> Thor Ragnarok was so good is because you had in Jeff Goldblum, his evil is stated. And yeah, yeah, or fighting against his or Black Panther, right? Yeah, like the, the the best ones are the ones that do have an idea at the core, yeah. and you see how it affects the characters. You see how it. It, it is called back to the events of the film and the decisions that the people make. Or the first half of the Captain America movie, which was which one? about how, like, the first American, the, like, the, first, the first Avenger, Avenger, yeah, which was about like how propaganda <coughs> is used during mm -hmm. wartime. Yeah, very interesting message. Second half of the movie, not. I so do much, not but, remember the propaganda yeah. angle of that movie. I oh, haven't seen it since it came out in theaters, so it's been what like eight years. Or yeah, something. they make him like go on tour and like. Oh yeah. Okay. Like punch fake Nazis and <laughs> right. for yeah, he's like he's a prop essentially for mm -hmm. the army. Yeah, like it, the first Avengers is like a really good movie. I like that movie a lot. Um, I think it is it is underappreciated in the Marvel canon. Um, in any event, do we have any uh, any closing thoughts about Bell Fargo? Um, I I liked it this time around. I did find the sort of disdain for Midwesterners <laughs> to be like the overriding thing that kind of bothered me about watching the film this time around. I was like, I don't I don't know if like all these characters deserved uh, their their um, their treatment by the film, but. Or yeah, I guess I saw some like, affection. Like the way that like the Midwest is like characterized. I think yeah, I, I think I saw some affection in it. Like I think that yeah. there's. A, there's a truth in it, <laughs> and <laughs> I think that there is some, like just that these people are on, in movies at all, right? Like you don't see folks like this that often, and they exist, they're in the world. Mm -hmm. And like just making space for them in cinema I think is useful, I don't know. It struck me as like when conservatives go after liberals for being like Hollywood elite. Okay. Like this, they was like, mm -hmm. yeah, this movie kind of is, that is true. <laughs> okay, <laughs> oh, maybe. They are like, Joel and Ethan Cole and are Midwesterners, but they are like, they left. You know, they're like, not Midwesterners anymore. They are anymore. like making fun of. Yeah, like they're the Midwest. So they're from California now. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were two things I didn't get around to um, before. But one thing I noticed was so the two criminals they seem very clearly to be outsiders, right? Because they don't speak with any of the Midwestern accents or anything like that. That's true. Um, Good eye. Actually. Like one one of them's a European. Uh, Steve Buscemi seems to be like an East Coaster or something like that yes. based on his Always. voice. Um, and I don't know if this is like throughout the whole movie, but I noticed a lot of scenes where um, there's like a landscape or like there's undisturbed snow or like fresh snow mm -hmm. um, that these criminals are like the first ones to tread through. Oh, wow. That's a good up. read. Yeah, you're um, right. So, like, there's one where he's driving through the long-term parking lot yeah. to steal a license plate, and it's all, like, completely undisturbed snow, and the cars have been there for a while, and he just makes that big-ass tread mark right through the whole parking lot. Yeah, you're, that's, that's a good eye. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think you're right. Yeah. And there were a bunch like that, like, uh, when he's burying the money. Yeah. And, uh, when, uh, like when the guy's running out of the car. And, and that, yeah. too, yeah. Things right. like that. So I noticed that they're always, like, causing a big disruption in this nice little, like, Midwestern... Huh. Um, you know, I think you're on Yeah, I think you're right there. Actually, that's that's really interesting. I'd have to watch it again for that. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's like one to one with their scenes, right, but, but it's, uh, you're, it's you're, something I noticed. There's numerous times. times where that happens. You're, yeah. yeah, you're correct. And huh. the second thing was, uh, I'm a little bothered by the Mike character. Yeah, who had that one scene. I didn't really understand why that scene was there. I think. Uh, because I thought about it too. It's certainly the most off-putting scene, or like, like, or confusing scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, you, you. F I think part of it is just like it's not just these guys that are doing dumb stuff, right? Like it's, 
everybody. It's a random dude that you happen to remember from high school is also kind of a scumbag and mm -hmm. like a liar and pathetic. Um, so I think that that's really what they're getting at there. Uh, but it's still, yeah, one of the more confusing scenes in the movie. I thought it was funny yeah. because going into that scene, you only see the back of his head, right? And yeah. At that moment, I was like, are there any Asian people in the Midwest? And then they like, you know, go around and actually show his face, and it turns out it is an Asian dude. And I'm like, yeah. oh, cool, there's an Asian guy here. That's Wait a awesome. minute. <laughs> yeah. And then the scene progresses, and I'm like, oh, oh no. no. Turns out he's a creep. Please. Yeah, he's, he's the worst. Yeah, actually, there is a pretty large Hmong population in Minneapolis mm -hmm. specifically, um, because during the Vietnam War, the Minnesota churches like specifically invited Hmong refugees to come to Minnesota, and they did. And like now there's a huge Hmong population there to, to this day. Yeah, it's still a thing. So I, I, my, my guess was that he was a Hmong character. But um, yeah, I also find that to be the most troubling scene of this film. I, so I did look up the scene after because I wanted to figure out what was going on sure. there. Um, or at least I looked at the movie and the scene was brought up and I was like, okay, so I'm not the only one right. who's weirded out by that. And someone, some people noted that um, because of this scene, like Francis McDormand has a chat with another um, like high school friend who said that Mike was lying about the whole right. thing, um, and that he was just kind of like mentally ill or something like that. And they said that this leads to a change in her character, not to accept people's kindness and honesty at face value. Interesting. Okay. I didn't come up with this. This was in a comment okay. discussion, so I don't want to cheat. But <laughs> I thought that was an interesting observation. That's a long it, way to go for that. I feel like. Um, but like but after that, she yeah. after yeah. that she goes back and talks to William H Macy's character a second time, and then yeah. he ends up having to flee. Um, because she starts pressing him harder. She yeah. like, actually like, goes after oh, him. So I thought that was an interesting point. That is an interesting point. Uh, huh. I just wish they didn't have to throw an Asian dude under the bus for that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my own uh, selfish read on that. Uh, no, you're, no, no, you're not wrong. And again, it feeds into some pretty lazy stereotypes, um, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's interesting. Thank you for raising that. Yep. Um, in any case, we will be back in a moment with things we've seen. Stay tuned. And we're back with things we've seen. Uh, this is a section where we uh, talk about sometimes things are in theater, sometimes things we just randomly saw. Um, Charles, you want to kick us off? Sure. So I had planned on going to see Sorry to Bother You, but unfortunately, in the one time slot I had over the weekend, there was like torrential pouring rain. It happened for, to me too. Yeah, and yeah. so I decided not to leave my apartment <laughs> yes. during that like huge downpour yes and that was the only slot I had for that movie so unfortunately I did not catch that but I did rewatch Mission Impossible because I wanted to see it on IMAX because they do have some IMAX footage the OG a uh, Mission Impossible Fallout oh, oh okay one. yeah I rewatched it uh, on IMAX this time um, and uh, I don't still think my good. opinion has changed it was still pretty sweet um, I mean my problem with second viewings is that it just goes by way too quick like I, I consciously am noting the whole time how fast the movie is like slipping away from me, it feels like sometimes. <laughs> I know what you mean. Because um, I want to like savor and appreciate the scenes more and like uh, try to notice things, but all I notice is how fast the scenes are, basically. Like, you know, noting like how long I thought an action, an action scene felt the first time I saw it and mm -hmm. it just falling away from me. Um, but yeah, there, there were only two full IMAX scenes from what I can remember, but they were spectacular. Uh, so it was for the skydiving scene okay. and the helicopter chase scene. So they're like the perfect scenes for uh, the full screen. Yeah, uh, so like the beginning and the ratio. end. Yeah, yeah. Okay. essentially. 
Um, but yeah. Uh, That's good. It was pretty I, nice. I, I've wondered about the psychology of that as well, because I too have had that effect where like the second viewing of a film, which I do every week now because for the show, is it feels a lot faster. Yeah. Like, it regularly feels a lot faster than the first viewing. And I think it has to do with you know precisely where you are in the movie or something like that. But I Yeah, I feel like I mean I when you're familiar with something, your mind skips over. Yeah, I think a your lot. brain takes shortcuts. Yeah, your yeah, that probably is what it is. I mean, people yeah. have the same experience when you when you walk somewhere and then walk back. The walk back like people yeah. hardly yeah. every time. True. Like, Even on familiar walks, it's really yeah. weird. Yeah. I guess that's relativity yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'm not entirely sure if I noticed anything new this time. I mean, there's things that you can backtrace, like when you know um, a certain twist is coming up, you can see some of the signs, right? Like right. the interrogation room at the beginning, I could tell that through the windows, there was no scenery outside, and so it looked a little more suspicious this time okay. because it was just like kind of a generic light shining through the window. Got it. Right, and I didn't pick up on that the first time through because I wasn't paying attention to the background. It, it wouldn't mean anything to you. Yeah, I was... Yeah. Um, I was just paying attention to the dialogue, right? Well, so I was distracted yeah. away from that, right? So it's like a magic trick that kind of distracted you away from it. But the second time, you can you can pick out more specific things. Um, but yeah, still a blast. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. All right, Crescent, what uh, what shark movie did you see this week? <laughs> well, I saw the man. Oh wow, okay, that yeah. shark movie <laughs> dominated the box office. No kidding, right? Like that was stunning. A uh, clear winner at the box office. I don't know. Not, not that much else came out, but still, like go get Mission it. Impossible is in its second weekend. Yeah, your second or third, so. but yeah, um, but still, yeah, big shark movie got there. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so this is a movie that had been in development hell for a long period of time. This is the term <laughs> when a movie is like greenlit and then doesn't get made for a very long period of time. Um, this one was in development hell for like 15 years or something. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Something like that. Christ. Um, it's based on a book, which I've read as a middle schooler. Mm -hmm. um, I bet it's a garbage science fiction book. But um, yeah, this uh, tells the story of Jason Statham, uh, a shark expert. Sub no, he's not a shark expert. He's a like sub rescue. Guy. Like submarines? Yeah, he does like uh, deep sea rescue. I was hoping he'd be sure. a marine biologist. <laughs> yes, Jason yeah. Statham, marine biologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's uh, kind of, he, he has like a bad experience. Like it, it, in the cold open, he's like rescuing a sub and he uh, kind of hangs it up after okay. after that. Um, and we find him in Thailand and he's, he's a drunk. And, <laughs> Um, <laughs> we need you to kill this big shark. Yeah, there's a s small submersible that had gone to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, and they they kind of pull him in to like go. Is James Cameron on go it? Go save it. Yeah, it made me think a lot about James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then lo and behold, at the bottom of the trench, there's the the shark, and by leaving the trench, they kind of provide an opening for the shark. It's explained in the movie. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it all makes it's, perfect sense. It's it's dumb. Um, <laughs> and then the shark goes on to like eat people and things. Um, for, like, they're good and bad things about this movie. Um, it's obviously not a serious movie. I think Rain Wilson's in this movie. He's pretty funny. Nice. Um, there's another actor whose name I forget, but he plays a character named DJ. He's pretty funny in the film as well. Um, and so I think the film does a good job of, like, not taking itself seriously. Good choice. Um, but yeah. for a shark movie, it's not, like, particularly bloody or 
gruesome for most of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like a Deep Blue Sea style film where there's like a lot of violence. Okay, but even Jaws was pretty. Well, violent. did they PG thirteenify yeah. this movie? I think it's PG thirteen. It it definitely feels like it's PG thirteen. Um, they don't really even swear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is the shark really big? The shark's big. Yeah. Okay. And. You sound pretty unimpressed in general. No, I really am. It's uh, okay. yeah, it's it's like a whatever movie. I think the uh, the point of this movie, there's the the fil film itself has no point other than to <laughs> make money. Um, the real point of the film, though, is to make money from Chinese film goers. <laughs> Got it. Uh, okay. I'm pretty sure the film was financed by a Chinese production company, which is probably why it was finally greenlit after a decade and a half or so of sitting in development hell. Um, it stars a famous Chinese actress who's in a number of American films now because this is how films are financed. Um, and yep. a majority of the action takes place in China, and they like even like mm -hmm. wave the Chinese flag at the end of the, okay. at the, end of the movie. Really? Oh my God. <laughs> so the amount of like pandering to China is pretty extreme in this film. And that, I think, ultimately is the point of this venture it's okay. just to like Extract release Chinese this money. film in China and make money because it's one of the like 15 American films that they allow per year the ones that waves so. the Chinese flag at the end yeah yeah um shit okay so yeah I don't know it's it's a 49% around tomatoes I bet they were pleasantly surprised that it, it made so much money in the US because it's like clearly not meant to do that <laughs> so um, we're, we're looking forward to the make two then I'm sure it'll get a sequel now that it's like done so well, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, that'll probably be even dumber. Even dumber. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's gonna be set on the Yangtze River. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I think that there are good ways to do the uh, like a film like this, and like it makes me think of like sort of the trauma films, which are like which ones? Trauma. The like okay. The like B movies from yeah. the eighties and nineties, like mm -hmm. the Toxic Avenger, like. If you're gonna make a film like this, I think you should like embrace its like B movie heritage, and I, I don't think this film does like a good job of, of doing that actually. Where there's there's a lot of B movie history to mm -hmm. draw on to make this interesting and good, they um, don't. or to stylize it, and it really lacks any particular style. There's nothing really interesting about the film or characters. Like, is this yeah. is this better or worse than Sharknado? <laughs> I'm sure it's better than Sharknado. I don't know if you've seen Sharknado. I have not, it's but I'm sure you have. close to unwatchable. Okay. Yeah. That seems like a movie that really would embrace its B-movie heritage, right? Like, that's the whole point. Yeah, but they that, clearly that, do. The yeah. film, like, doesn't have the budget to... Well, so with that, those films suffer from is terrible CGI. Got it. Okay. And Isn't that part of the charm, though? It's kind of hilarious how I, bad the I CGI I is? I never find that charming. Like, okay. I really never found that interesting or charming. As opposed to a trauma film <coughs> where all the f effects are practical right. and more gruesome be mm -hmm. because of that. Well, because they were made in, like, 1987, and they didn't have any computers. And it was yeah, just, or it doesn't yeah. even have to be that bad. Like, um, American Werewolf in London is, like, sure. a good example of a film like this where the effects <coughs> of this film are, in, like, really good, mm -hmm. and it's... That's kind of what drives uh, elements of the film here. Here it's just like, yeah, it's CGI. Like uh, everything's shot in front of a green screen. You know, they go to you know vacation resort in China. They, I'm sure they shot there. But the rest of it's like on a green screen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's just nothing like remarkable about this movie. That's too bad. Like, I know you were excited about it, like unironically. No, I knew. Semi-ironically. I, I knew it was gonna be bad. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. 
It's different um, kinds I saw of it in bit. 3D. There's only like one effect that comes to mind where like the 3D actually came into play. Pays off, yeah. Um, was the shark jumping at the screen? Good. No, the shark like bites something inflatable and it like pops like at the <laughs> screen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like Dude. jarring in the moment because they're like, whoa. Like, yeah. And then, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this film is pointless other than to like make money in China. Like, I'm not going to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you told me it was great, I wasn't going to watch it, to be honest. Right. Not going to lie. Well, what did you watch? Oh, okay. Um, well, I think this is going to be one of those weeks where we really starkly define the distinction between Crossman's taste and my taste. <laughs> because <laughs> what I saw this week uh, was uh, Madeline's Madeline. Uh, so it is a movie, another movie that got a lot of festival attention. Um, it is about acting. Um, so it, pre it, it centers on a young actor in like an experimental theater troupe in New York, uh, played by Helena Howard. Um, if you haven't heard of her, it's because this is the only movie she's ever made. Oh. <laughs> and she is great in it. Uh, Molly Parker plays the director. Uh, she was in Deadwood. She was like the wife of the bad prospector in Deadwood. Um, and then Miranda July is her overbearing mother. Um, it remind, in some ways, it reminded me of The Master. Um, in other ways, it weirdly reminded me of Act of Killing. Um, the premise of the movie is that it's an ex it, this is like an immersive theater experience that they're trying to workshop you know, at this you know, bizarro, artsy kind of place. Um, and the director, Molly Parker character, gradually draws more and more out of the Madeline character and it starts colonizing and expropriating her life for her own artistic purposes. And so it becomes this both examination of her growing up, leaving young adulthood, or entering young adulthood, leaving childhood, so it's a, a puberty metaphor, um, but also just the larger message about like what exactly art, artists do to their subjects and how your subjective experience as a person becomes an object of experience for the audience once you put it out there into the world, and how that can damage and distort and tear apart your own psyche, really, and how that is almost a necessary component of art, and how that can, especially at a young age, traumatize a child. Um, it was a fascinating movie, really unconventional way of portraying dialogue, and the sound design was really interesting. Um, in the sense that like, there, was, there was intentional audio syncing problems in the movie, what? where like, you would hear a line of dialogue that doesn't line up with what the characters are saying, so you don't know if this is happening in the character's head, if they're experiencing a line of dialogue well after it actually was spoken, and so it distorts reality in that sense. Very much an art house film. Hmm. Um, I really, really loved it. I think it's one of the most impressive performances from a young actor I've ever seen outright, period, uh, from Helena Howard. Um, and I, I really, I can't recommend it enough. Like, it was, it was very, very excellent, um, certainly w within my favorites of the year so far. It's called Madeline's Madeline. Um, so cool. go check it out. It's playing at the quad right now, but I hope it gets a wider release at some point. Um, super what good. Are we, what are we going to watch next week? Okay, uh, well, we've watched one movie about a couple wandering around in a foreign city, and we did not like it very much. <laughs> so that would be uh, Lost in Translation. I want to try a different version of the same concept that I think is actually pretty good, um, and I want to do Before Sunrise uh, for from uh, Mr. Linklater. So 
thank you for listening, everybody. Um, if you like the show, please uh, tell your friends and family about it, and join us next week for Before Sunrise.